This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2018, Episode 19. Today we are focusing on the finale of Rayview Starlight and how it changes our understanding of the rest of the work. Review Starlight at first looks like it fits into the idol show genre of anime, featuring song and dance contests and stage performances and an all-girl cast and so on. But that classification misses the mark. It is more accurately described as an anime about girls in a musical theater school preparing to put on a new version of a play, while the leads are secretly competing in underground musical theater contests in a way that parallels a storybook that was turned into the very stage musical the girls are putting on and altering as they go, all the while being watched over by a giraffe hosting said auditions who ends up actually being a stand-in for us in the audience, watching over the girls competing in their auditions for the right to tell the story that they want, both on and off stage. The show is operated on several levels all along, with their interpersonal relationships changing in ways that mirror the actions taken in the auditions, and both of which mirror the actions contained in the original stage play. In the last episode, the story pulls back even one step further, including the viewership experiencing the series as yet another level for story parallels. Today's video, then, will be about conforming the larger thematic patterns we have already talked about with some that have new emphasis in our finale, and then how all of this can work together to create new meaning out of the audience's inclusion in the story. The last few videos we have made on this series have emphasized how the building of community and team among the girls has been a dominant theme down the stretch. Over and over again, defeat in the auditions resulted in stronger bonds between girls as each relaxed their contentious quest towards the top. Then, the close involvement of the stage girls in the details and direction of the next starlight created a shared goal and purpose. And finally, that fantastic interlude of Karen descending the stairs summed up almost everyone's journey and their desire to be a cohesive group, an outpouring of starlight that Karen gathers up to take to Hikari, the last step to make them whole. And so, this episode starts with two contrasting scenes to drive this final tension home. The other seven are preparing a meal together, one of the most obviously inclusive everyday activities, and they are already counting on Karen bringing Hikari back. There are nine bowls out from the get-go. Banana even concludes the scene by saying that she's so happy they are all together. This cuts immediately to Hikari all alone, in a landscape rendered especially barren and lifeless to emphasize her isolation. Her nakedness against the blowing wind evokes a feeling of bitter cold, contrasted against the obvious warmth of the shared kitchen. Two extreme points, and our finale becomes about whether Hikari can go to there from here. It's not a journey toward top star at all. 
It's a journey toward that shared meal and what it represents. Yet, what a distance between. Hikari's stage of fate is a far cry from the dorm kitchen. She has chosen to perpetually reenact Starlight. But since she stole no one's shine to fuel the stage and already had lost some of her own, it's not some grand affair. It cannot even be the infinite but normal Starlight that Banana chose. Instead, it is simple, stripped to its essence. Even her costume is a colorless cloth tied into a dress. More importantly, there are no other players. Hikari does not just run through Claire's lines, but speaks Flora's lines as well. Since the simple set has no stairs or tower, nor does it have other goddesses to strive against, Hikari's labor to ascend consists of stacking hundreds of physical stars. When she finally climbs to the height of the platform she builds, she has no one there to reach for the stars alongside her. She must hold up both hands as surely as she is speaking both lines. Logically, then, she must suffer both fates. She must fall from the tower as Flora fell, and yet be imprisoned as Claire was imprisoned. The nature of that prison is this solitary starlight performance, a Sisyphean task that cannot waver or end. This does not improve even when Karin discovers her. Hikari does not acknowledge her. In fact, she is right at the part in the lines where Claire does not seem to recognize Flora, just as surely as Hikari gives the impression of not recognizing Karin. This prompts Karen to try to join in, to pick up half the lines and walk through Starlight with Hikari, to bridge the gap. But Hikari does both set of lines anyway, boxing Karen out. She'll walk through the rest of Starlight, and Karen will climb the tower with her and be knocked down with her. Yet she can't grasp her hand as they fall together, and Hikari begins the story once more. She is determined to exclude Karen, to perform this penance alone a cycle that never ends and therefore never has to involve anyone else. Cycles have been a bit of a recurring element in Rayview Starlight, uh, especially emphasized in this finale, so let's take a moment and talk about that. The obvious cycle from our final episode is Hikari's stage of fate. What appeared to be snow at first may be nothing of the sort. When her makeshift tower is toppled, it is done so in a manner that breaks some of the stars into smaller pieces, which no doubt break up further upon falling back to the ground. How many times would it take to grind some of these stars down to dust? How many cycles of starlight would be required to fill an entire landscape with disintegrated stars? Just how many times has Hikari walked through these lines by herself? Now, Hikari chose this cycle, right? She did it to keep anyone else from being involved, from losing their shine, from being trapped in the tower. Banana did something similar with her top star win. She chose a cycle of repeating that first year because of fearing the uncertain future, of losing the moments and friendships she had made. She, too, justified it as protecting everyone else from the sense of loss that they would otherwise have to face. Both of these cycles were unnatural, made possible by the reality-bending effects of the top star competition. There are actually other cycles implicit in the story that are far more natural. There is the simple day-night cycle, the ritual of each day's classes, and the advancement of the seasons. A school is a particularly good setting to emphasize this because the school year has a built-in cycle as well. And in this case, it means we have the preparation for two different school festivals in each year to compare, the 99th and 100th. Normally, in these kinds of cycles, certain things obviously repeat. There are clear beginnings and endings and the progression between, but each iteration is distinct in some way from the rest. The two starlights are not identical, either in preparation or in their final form. 
All the girls are a year older from the advancement of the school year and the seasons. Normal and natural cycles have these variations and advancement compared to one another. Bananas and Hikari cycles are not this way. They break this idea of the same but different. Bananas might have varied somewhat as she herself made changes, but the years never advance and the main details never wavered. Hikari's repetitive stage is so unnatural that there isn't even a day-night cycle. When Karin disrupts her enough to break up her lines, the sun appears to rise for perhaps the very first time. Thus it turns out there is another cycle here, one in opposition. It is the cycle of Karin's efforts to reach her friend, to reach them all. It started the moment Karin jumped into that very first ray view, and it continues even now, even in the same manner. Consider all the machinery that whirls up during Karin's costume change. No one else has a transition like that. More to the point, this isn't a textile assembly line producing costumes for the whole theater or even the whole cast. That is Karin's uniform. No one else has that design. All of these are Karin's costumes. All of these are in preparation for Karin being reborn on stage. So many that they need to be produced on an industrial scale. Hikari may want to perform Starlight by herself an infinite number of times, but Karin will jump in and try to alter that fate an infinite number of times. She is not afraid of a future failing, like Banana, like Hikari. If Karin fails, that's just the step before she rises to try again. There is only one word I would use to describe the look on Karin's face the very first time she shows up this episode, and that word is determination. Hikari should have known better. She already tried locking Karin away once before, believing it was for her own good. She already tried leaving Karin behind once before, only to end up more closely meshed than when they began. The trick to Karin's success is that her cycle changes. Her cycle is try, fail, try again. In what is almost the first scene of the series, Karin spells it out plainly. She is evolving day by day, and right now she is at her newest. Unlike Banana and Hikari's cycles, every new effort of Karin's is an advancement, represents a change, a progression a far more natural cycle. As she says repeatedly, stage girls are born anew every time they stand on stage. The moments when they stand together are eternal because they are singular. They are never the same, never should be the same. Every telling of starlight should be unique in its own way, even while belonging to this starlight cycle. This rationale is just how Karen got through to Banana. In fact, Banana internalized this idea so much that she repeats it back to Karin during the staircase descent. Banana abandoned her own idea of preserving moments by repetition and replaced it with the idea that moments are preserved because of being irreplaceable. It is also how she breaks the cycle of Hikari's stage of fate. Karin did not get another showdown with Hikari for no reason. She gets another showdown because she refuses to stop trying to tell the story she wants to see. As she says, Starlight is a tragedy that ends in separation, but there must be an ending where that isn't true, that there must also be a time when Flora rises up. And no, no such Starlight exists so far as we know, but Karin is willing to be reborn as many times as it takes to see that story told. She's willing to climb up again and again, and speaking this defiance, her part of the stage rises up in kind, eventually recalling a staircase that she has ascended once more. She believes it is never the same story twice, that they are always born anew, which means with enough tries, you might be able to tell the story you really want. Into this idea of unique stories comes the biggest surprise of the finale, 
which is the giraffe extending his metaphor to include the audience themselves. We knew the giraffe was responsible for the competition between the stage girls, and that he himself was a spectator. His desire to see a stage that no one could foresee was held up as the motive for this whole uh, song and dance. It appeared that he, at the very least, was meant to represent the system that so constrained and even punished the girls. When he unmistakably turns to face us, the television audience, including us in the explanation for why things unfolded as they did, we learn that we are being held complicit for the fate of those in this system. Whatever tyranny or deception you associate with a giraffe to this point may now be insinuated to apply to yourself. Before running too far down that line of thinking though, let's talk about the relationship between audience and performer, shall we? It may be the crux of the entire series. As it happens, we have talked a little bit about the audience's role in theater before. Theatrical performances are more influenced by the fact of an audience than most art forms. Traditionally, the audience stays in one place, in their seats, while all the relevant parts of the story, settings, characters, dialogue, all of that must come on stage where the audience can see it, and then leave again when it's no longer relevant. Thus, how auctions are choreographed, how the backdrop and props are oriented, where the characters even stand, Every part of the performance depends on where the audience is and must be arranged to face them. I know we talked before about how the audience's potential distance from the stage also influences the lack of subtlety in stage elements. Gestures and emotions and costumes need to be exaggerated in order to be understood from the nosebleed seats. And then, in order to feel like a cohesive whole, every other part of a theatrical performance needs to be a little exaggerated as well. In our first pair of videos on the series, we even talked about how this is something theater actually has in common with animation. Additionally, and the thing that gives live theater a flavor quite distinct from film and TV, is the feedback between performer and audience. The actors have their lines, and the lighting and music techs have their cues, and they can technically perform their entire script to an empty room. But they don't, of course. The whole reason there is a term like dress rehearsal is to distinguish it from the actual performance in front of a live crowd. When the audience is there, the performers are aware of them. They can hear the applause, hear them laugh at jokes, hear them gasp with surprise or delight, or hear them shuffle in boredom or discomfort. A show can run for decades if an audience loves it, or fold in a week if they don't. For all its extravagance and pageantry, and despite all the effort from cast and crew, the theater derives its meaning and lifeblood from those they perform for. Position zero, front and center, is not a coveted and significant spot arbitrarily. Its prominence comes from the way it demands attention from spectators. The power of position zero does not come from the actors, it comes from the audience. But despite the overwhelming influence the audience has on theater, the illusion relies on the performers pretending that they don't exist. You've probably heard of the fourth wall, right? Especially in the context of breaking the fourth wall? The term comes from theater, where the stage is physically obscured on three sides, the back, the left, and the right, while open in the front. However, this opening is treated as a fourth wall that the performers can't see through while the audience can. The proscenium arch that we've referenced before is the visual representation of this divide between actor and spectator. It is echoed in the shape of the legs of Tokyo Tower, and again in the shape of Tower Bridge in the London auditions. On this side is story, and on that side is spectating, 
and this dynamic is preserved in film and television despite no potential for interaction. An actor therefore breaks this fourth wall when they acknowledge that the audience exists, either by reference or by direct address. The latter is what the giraffe is doing, and yet it is more than just speaking to us. The giraffe invites us into the story itself, reaching across the fourth wall divide and pulling us up into the stage with the rest. The performers remain on stage because we wished it, because we wanted to continue watching over the girls. The choice of theater as setting now seems especially significant as we discover that the power of the audience over performer was a central idea all along. There are probably several ways this can be interpreted, but two of them occur to me right out of the gate. The first is one we already alluded to even before the giraffe was linked to the audience, and this is the external reference to the Takarazuka Revue. The Revue system elevates a top star above all other roles, and the top star is also always one of the Yatokiyaku, the male role players. This means if you are sorted into Masumiyaku, the female role players, you are forever locked out of being top star. Of course, the male role players still compete fiercely with one another for that solitary spot. It's a system with a lot of losers. As Karin herself explains to us about Seisho, they may all work together to bring the theater to life, but they're all rivals to become the next star. This becomes interesting in light of the giraffe reveal because it was the audience's desire that prompted this system within Takarazuka. It didn't start out seeking to elevate and idealize masculinity as its main draw. This was purely an evolution of purpose in response to the desires of its largely female audience. The system now must serve this audience, perpetuating the strict constraints that all Takarazuka hopefuls conform to. It's just as rigid as the giraffe's underground auditions and with a similar outcome. Those who do not succeed essentially give up some of their own shine to support the shine of the one at the top. Hikari makes quite the commentary on such an idea when she is sinking back into the audition theater. She says the tiara representing top star has no meaning, just like the star that Flora and Claire were striving for. It's only a light to invite new sinners to the stage of fate. In other words, it's bait and the system a trap. Serving the audience's whim has erected a certain type of stage in the Takarazuko Revue, and while it is undoubtedly full of shine and wonder, it is also restrictive. It enforces limitations on all who would aspire to stand atop it. The second application that occurs to me is not to the audience in universe or the audience of his external reference, but to the audience of the anime itself. That is, us. The giraffe, in some ways, maybe in all ways, is meant to reflect the audience for Review Starlight the anime, and probably anime audiences in general. This seems like a good time to point out that Review Starlight is not just an anime. There is also a stage play version of the story, featuring all of our voice actresses as their on-stage counterparts. My understanding is that the stories are not exactly the same, and of course I would not expect a stage play to be as many hours as this whole series. But the point is that this story exists as musical theater and an anime. It's a pretty good bet it's making commentary on a certain musical theater company. Doesn't seem a stretch that it's making commentary on anime at the same time, right? So what does this mean for us in the anime audience? How do we compare to the giraffe? Well, let me ask you, what is your first compulsion at the end of a series like this? Do you think about how you would score it? Eight out of 10, nine out of 10, whatever? Do you proclaim which of these girls you liked best or least, which you would have wanted to see more or less of? 
Do you talk about whether it's a contender for anime of the season, or of the year, or where you would put it in your own ranking of the anime that you've seen? Do you draw comparisons against other anime that it reminds you of, others in the same genre, others by the same creators? Do you, just like our giraffe friend, have a kind of internal leaderboard, constantly shifting, upon which you will slot this anime or this character? Who is best girl, who is the best wife, etc.? I think you probably understand what I'm about here, right? I mean, if I were to reduce Juna, Barana, Mahiru, Karuko, and Futaba down and simply refer to them as girls 5 through 9, wouldn't you say that I have left out quite a bit of their story? Is Hikari's place on the very top, and Juna, I think, on the very bottom, an accurate way to represent them? Are their relative positions the best measure of their value? Or, to cast that net wider, is a series score on my anime list the best measure of its value? How about its popularity? A ways back, when it came time to conclude my episode-by-episode -episode analysis of Drawing in the Franks, I began the video for the finale by urging people not to boil the entire series down to whether they liked it or not, or with how many stars they would rate their experience. Analysis is not quantitative. It's not math. There are no right answers, no objective ratings. If your only thought process at series end is which number you should assign, then you are selling your experience short. I know it drives some of you crazy, but I resist giving out my opinion on anime series as a whole. My mail list is private. I am not a reviewer and not interested in scoring series. I think you might can guess, then, that this representation of the audience as the giraffe with his leaderboard is an image that kind of resonates with me. Instead of classmates in a musical theater school, instead imagine each of our stage girls as the entire creative staff behind an anime production. Maybe imagine them as nine anime that premiere in the same season, or that inhabit the same genre. When all is said is done, each will be ranked differently, in popularity, in critical score, in its impact on anime culture, and how profitable it is, and so on. If you are not the winner in some or all of these categories, did you actually produce something of value? Should you despair of not reaching the heights of top show? If you derive your sense of worth from how an audience positions you, then maybe so. That seems to be the normal way the audition process works in Rayview Starlight. If you aren't the winner, you are effectively the loser. What does an audience care of the effort put into a work, or the message a creator wishes to share, if some aspect of the creation falls short on the proving grounds? We don't care about such externalities. We are just here to be entertained. But our story all along has been about Karin's quest to change that idea, right? The girls who lose along the way get knocked out of the running for the tiara, yet each eventually gains something else that matters to them. Some new perspective that makes falling short of the top no longer seem like losing at all. They are at peace with the sense of purpose they embrace. Perhaps, too, a series might have value even if it stumbles in places, even if it's not the most well-reviewed, if it has an art style or genre that is not as well-liked, or if it just barely limps into the top 30 for popularity during its season. Is the audience's version of a leaderboard the only metric for success? It seems like the message here is a resounding no. But this urge to enforce a hierarchy on performances is not the only way anime viewers parallel the giraffe. We also help create and shape the stage. Just as live performers can see and hear their audience, knowing if they cheer or jeer, laugh or cry, 
so do the studios see and hear how we react to their productions, and they tailor their stages to suit. If a show with unresolved sexual tension between brother and sister gains a following, then suddenly sibling innuendo can be found all over. Have an alternate world show blow up big enough, and soon you won't be able to swing a dead protagonist without hitting a new isekai. And if a certain character archetype becomes popular, prepare for more examples to rain from the freaking sky. Sometimes literally. Once these kind of storytelling elements become widespread, however, you end up getting pushback, with an audience ready to disparage and decry any new example that arises. And so, creators start looking for the next thing that the audience likes, the next stage that they want to see, and then that will be the thing we get so much of. Now tell me, doesn't that sound at all like a type of cycle? Of repeating the same kind of story over and over? maybe with only the most minor of variations? Of performing from a place of fear over what may happen if one strays too far from the script. It's no accident who they chose to play the new role invented for the final version of Starlight, uh, but we will come back to that in a bit. The point is that even in anime, the power of position zero comes from the audience. Our expectations do not stay off stage. We cease to be spectators in a sense, enforcing boundaries on creators who hope for any kind of success. And yet, we do so with comparatively little cost to ourselves. Creators and characters alike may labor in the waste, yet we watch from a distant, private oasis. The critic risks little. This makes us seem like an antagonistic force, doesn't it? There are certainly elements of the interaction between creators and audience that make fandom seem more like tyranny than adulation. In Rayview Starlight, we often found ourselves thinking of the giraffe as the enemy as well, right? Setting up these competitions, fueling the conflict between the girls with the match pairings, punishing the ultimate losers of the contest? He seems like an architect of misery. It's certainly not the benevolent existence that fans probably imagine themselves as. So how does Rayview Starlight ultimately address the existence of the audience and the giraffe? What is the last word on our place in the process of creation? Before we answer that, let's look at one more parallel. We discussed the existence of cycles earlier and looked at ones associated with three characters in particular, Hikari, Banana, and Karin. Now that we have the giraffe as a metaphor for the audience and the girls as metaphor for creations, we might can look at the cycles as representing the creative process. Banana, as we mentioned already in this context, she believed their first work was the zenith of what's possible, that it can't be topped. She doesn't want to try to change things too much or do anything completely new. She's like creators returning to the same well over and over, creating derivative copies of works that they already know are successful or reusing their own formulaic ways of producing stories ad nauseum. No innovation, no risk-taking, only willing to tell the same type of story that they've seen work before. Hikari's cycle is one step further removed from risk. She has no audience at all for her story. In fact, it can't even be called that. As Karin says, she has no co-stars or stagehands. She can't put on a performance alone. Hikari's argument for why she must perform alone is that she doesn't want anyone else to experience the torment of loss. Her version of Starlight is like an idea that one keeps to themselves, that they never risk before the eyes of outsiders. Instead, they fuss over it again and again striving for some mythical perfection that will always keep it out of view from the judgment of others. In Hikari's case, she has failed once before and now will not risk it again, nor ask anyone to risk it with her. 
Banana won't risk straying too far from what works, but Hikari won't even risk that. Karin then becomes the counterpoint with her own cycle. She is innovation and risk-taking and trying again even after failure. Every new performance is a new creation to her. She is reborn every time she stands on stage. As mentioned, her showdown with Banana entails her convincing Banana that the chance of something new is worth the risk, that the old success is not wiped out, but burns on as an eternal shining moment. Her showdown with Hikari involves demonstrating that the risk of failure is not as terrible as it seems. When Karin loses the rematch, that is not the end at all. Instead, she rises, insists that there could be a version of the story that they've never even seen before, something wholly new. Hikari cannot believe she can rise back up. How can she be trying again after failing? Thus, Karin's success is not about tearing Hikari's stage down, but about bridging the gap between them, shoving the metaphorical world stage of Tokyo Tower through their platforms so that they cannot separate. She doesn't convince Hikari that there is no pain or no risk of failure. Instead, she convinces her that such loss is not the end, that her shine won't disappear. A creation doesn't have to be the most acclaimed, most beloved, most successful to still have been worth the effort to bring into the light of day. And even if it's not the story you wanted, you can always try again, to rise up and try to create the stage you want. And so, before their last contest, Hikari is inviting defeat at Karin's hands. She is prepared to face loss again, now believing that it will not be the end of the world. The cost of saving everyone from experiencing failure is that there will never be any chance of success either. There won't just be no new stories, there won't be any stories at all. Hikari losing their fight, but not her shine, then finally lets them be together, joined at last atop position zero. This notion of joining potentially contentious ideas together then forms the basis of our last section and tells us where we belong amidst it all. We already spoke about the increasing shift among the girls from rivals to teammates as the series has progressed. In fact, it's been the most dominant subject of the videos I have made. The final episode presented the isolated Hikari against the scene of the community meal, and we know that all of their journeys have come to completion when we see the picture of the nine of them enjoying that meal together. This seems to complete the character arcs. A group of girls originally forced by the system to be competitors instead become a cohesive unit, a cooperative family who each found something they can value besides claiming the top. That wraps up the stories of the stage girls, but what about our 100th Seisho Festival? What about our giraffe and what he represents? What about Starlight? As we suspected for some time, the girls are writing their own story by diverging from the rigid competition they were trapped within. This started with only small changes to their second performance of Starlight, but at the end we see that the alterations have been extensive, even going so far as to change the ending. I said before that they would likely no longer be happy with a Starlight that only included the eight of them. As they said during last episode's interlude, they will be waiting for Hikari on stage. Accommodating nine girls means adding a role to the play. Karin and Hikari take over performing Flora and Claire. Performing together with their shared shine, they are no doubt superlative, and if changing the end of the play is no big deal, then changing the casting is certainly within the realm of plausibility. That explains the in-universe reason for the change, though we know that it's their highly symbolic parallel to those two that really necessitates the switch. The new role is played instead by Banana, the original end boss. She basically plays the giraffe. 
The physical parallels were always intentional, I think. Banana is tall, her hair is yellow, and even her bunch of bananas hairstyle looks like a giraffe's horns from the right angle. They obviously can't cast a giraffe in the play, but they use a stylistic version of him to make sure the parallel is understood. The giraffe represents the audience, and so in the final Starlight, Banana is linked to the audience as well. Her earlier cycle of constantly rehashing the same once successful story is definitely a pattern that results from the influence of an audience. Even in Universe, it was her wonder at the cheering of the crowd that first launched her down that path. But this link is noteworthy for two other reasons, I think. One is that it is Banana's character in the play that enables the non-tragic ending. By proxy, this seems to suggest that the audience's desire can change what is otherwise a bad end. In Review Starlight's particular case, you could read this as Karin and Hikari being able to overcome the original separation because the audience actually wants them to find a way to be together. If the meaning stopped there, we might can argue that this is a poor excuse to gift us a happy end. However, in the context of considering the underground auditions and the story of Starlight as a parallel to the competition between artworks, we can derive a second meaning. The audience can enforce a strict ranking on creations, rewarding only the very best and punishing all others. Or they can find value in these creative works for something other than whether or not they are the best, or most popular, or most whatever. Doing this means that there is room at the top. Doing this means that the goddesses can be freed from their imprisonment. As the audience, we can be slave master, or we can be liberator. The other reason I think this is noteworthy is simply the casting of an audience stand-in at all. That is, we in the audience have been invited onto the stage. The giraffe at times came across as a diabolical schemer, controlling the fates of our stage girls, and stood quite apart from all the drama that he helped stoke. But Banana's character is part of that Starlight story, right in the thick of things. As the giraffe himself says when he breaks the fourth wall, a stage consists of the performers and spectators together. The audience certainly influences what kind of stage it is. We have talked about that at length. Maybe we should consider the audience part of the performance itself. I have to say, this idea is especially meaningful to me. It strongly echoes my own feelings on art. I believe that art, of any kind, is basically a conversation. It's a discussion between artist and audience. Art is a shared experience, and every person who watches a series, reads a book, views a sculpture, whatever, is having their own dialogue with the artist. There are as many interpretations of a work as there are people who experience it. And just as surely as no two people could have the exact same conversation as any other two people. We all internalize a work in our own way. A thousand thousand different viewpoints that all have their own merit. And this, finally, is why Karan's mission of inclusion is so important. The star they grasp at the end is not the two in the sky that they each reach toward, but the hand of the other. That is the star they have wished for. We as the audience are included in the grand stage of creativity. What we're doing right now, me talking, you listening, is us standing on that stage as well. If we only pick winners and losers, we create a system like the underground auditions. We can't be upset if we create a winner like Banana, giving us endless recursions of the same thing we've seen before. We should find value in the works that don't reach the top, encourage performers to try and fail, and try again. Otherwise, the fear of that failure may give us nothing new at all, 
a creative wasteland as barren as it is infinite. We should be as exuberant as the giraffe was when Karin crashed the stages together, reveling in the sight of something new, something that defied the pattern we had come to expect. Rayview Starlight operates on a lot of levels, even finally including us in its story. We should realize that the work was self-aware of putting on two performances. Our final scenes are a curtain call, but this is not the curtain call for Starlight the play. That part of the story, the in-universe story, wrapped up just before, beginning with the 99th Starlight as the camera approaches the open doors, and then ending with the 100th Starlight, the camera now receding from those same doors. No, this final curtain call is directed at us, the meta-story. The girls aren't in their Starlight costumes, but their audition uniforms. They are taking a bow for the anime audience, not the Seisho Academy audience. But where originally there were eight in that casting call, the one that we saw in the opening credits all along, this final one has Hikari join them. As they say, they are creating a new eternal tale, spun by the nine stage girls, supplanting the one that consists of only eight. That one is competitive, and though it ends with a winner, with someone to occupy the coveted spot at position zero, it also ends in tragedy and separation. Not this one, though. The final shot of our series is position zero, but there is no one claiming it. No one's shadow looms above. It doesn't belong to any one person. It's not something one stands upon. It is not something that should divide, but rather something one joins hands across. The final image offers the spot even to us, the audience. We can be included on the stage of fate. Perhaps we must be included, but we should also not try to claim position zero for ourselves. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.